Welcome to this episode of Pen to Paper Press Podcast. I'm Cindy Cochis. There is a backstory weaved into every book. To explore the creative process, I'm sitting down with authors, writers, editors, publishers, and an array of creative souls to have a conversation centered on how they develop their stories to completing their works of art. Each episode is an opportunity for us to explore mindsets, pearls of wisdom, and the experiences that began our journey as an author from the moment we put that pen to paper. After 40 plus years of working with national and international corporations and businesses, Bill Lee Emery has helped thousands of individuals who want to succeed in life. Bill distilled his knowledge and experiences into a series of books with one goal, to help people become healthier, and better versions of themselves. Bill's latest book is How to Be Bulletproof from Criticism and Do Whatever the Heck You Want. His other book titles include Stop Procrastinating, How to Get Out of Your Own Way and Play Better Golf, love that title, and (laughs) this one I'm curious to know more about, and the book title is Are You Dying to Get to Work? Welcome, Bill. It's good to have you here. Yes, Cindy. Lovely to be here. Good. And so, uh, you know, the book, your book titles—they are—they're fun. They're interesting. There's a sense of humor behind it. Um, you know, like don't take things so seriously. Obviously, a good sense of humor is very important to you. So. With all of your experiences and doing all of the work that you have done, is having a good sense of humor beneficial when you're managing that inner critic? I got to ask. (laughs) (laughs) I I reckon, Cindy, if you don't have a good sense of humor and your inner critic is just beating you around the place, then you're lost. You have to have a good sense of humor. And if you don't, then um, go watch a lot of stand-up comedy, uh, do whatever you need to to sharpen your funny bone because that's the thing that can basically save your butt. (laughs) (laughs) Agreed, agreed. And when you and I uh, had our pre-interview conversation here not too long ago, you brought up a term that, I believe I probably fell off my chair laughing so hard with. <laughs> so tell me about plurking. And, well, not me necessarily because I've already heard it, but tell tell everyone sure. what plurking is and where you came up with it. From. <laughs> okay. So I didn't actually come up with the term. It was um, I first had it with a mentor of mine about about forty years ago now. And I was learning about transactional analysis, that particular model of human behavior and gestalt therapy. And we really were exploring a whole bunch of different things about how how it is to be a human being on the planet and how to be successful. And for myself, I was noticing a lot of people doing nine to five where they would turn up at work, they would leave their creativity their joy at home, then they'd go to work and they'd bludgeon themselves for eight hours 
leave and go home and then at five o'clock they'd be alive and creative and happy etc and I didn't want to be I didn't want to do that and John Barnaby my mentor at the time he put this word up on the on the whiteboard and it's spelled p-l-e-r-k plurk now and then he described what it meant. And as soon as he described what it meant, I'm going, I'm going to be plurking for the rest of my life. Bugger this, bugger this going to work stuff. I want to do something different. So the PL stands for play or pleasure. Because if you're not enjoying what you're doing, then why the heck are you doing it? Um, it's, that's crazy to me. You know, those people spend all their, so many years of their life at work and a lot of people I know and I've been in contact with and work with are doing things that they don't like, even hate, as if there is no other options. Now, I'm, I'm not going to explore that because I can go down all kinds of rabbit holes, but right. I just want to understand the concept. So the RK stands for work, which is paying the mortgage, paying the rent, paying the bills, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff that you need to manage your life. But the really interesting part for me was the E, and the E stands for excitement, energy, effort, enthusiasm, all those things that a five-year-old has in bucket loads. You know, <laughs> look at a five-year-old, they just creative, fun, totally um, irresponsible, spontaneous. Right. <laughs> all the things that are so appealing in a human being. You know, I reckon we all need to go back to being a five-year-old, but with a little bit more knowledge and wisdom uh, along the way because their energy is just a thing that's so contagious. And, like, you know, I've met people in their 80s or 90s that are still bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. They've mm -hmm. still got that sense of life vitality that just goes through them because there's something they found or something that they're doing which is just bringing... You know, coming back to the sense of humour too, they can kind of see the humour about life and our struggles and all the stuff we do to ourselves, et cetera, et cetera. So, so that's the word plurk. So I've been plurking for 40 years and can intend to continue till the day I, I leave this planet. <laughs> <laughs> so is plurking more of a mindset or is it more of a... How do I want to say it? Because I know people who go to work and they're grouchy. And, and like you said, they, they leave there um, and they go off and do whatever. And it's like they become alive. Is it a mindset because in, that they're not enjoying work, not necessarily because of the work itself, but because they don't want to be there because yeah. they would rather be playing all the time? Or Yeah, yeah, they want to be somewhere else. And, and I don't know uh, about you, Cindy, or your listeners, but let me talk about love for a moment. Okay. When you love someone, you love them. But if you're in a relationship and you don't love them, you can't fake it. You can't really yeah. fake it. So mm -hmm. it's like you either are, you're not. It's like being pregnant. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. Right. So, <laughs> so, so in the same way, you know, I work with a couple that I work with. They were selling their business and they were moving on to do something else. And 
up until the point that they were selling their business, they actually loved the business. But then circumstances change and they know we're going to leave here, we're going to do something else. And from the time they decided that they were leaving, they found it, but they still had like two months to go of changeover. So they still had two months to go and they had difficulty getting up in the morning. They did not want to be there. Their hearts had left the building. Their bodies were still there because of contractual arrangements, but their hearts had left. Mm -hmm. And they came to me saying, you know, we're just having this hard time going there, being there, being engaged because they don't want to be there. So understanding human beings, if we've got a reason to be somewhere which is conscious and clear and agreed upon within ourselves, our heart is more likely to be there. So I helped them reframe what they were doing, going, well, there's another couple that have bought your business. They want to make this their work, their life's work for whatever period of time. It won't be part of their life, not the whole life. <laughs> they want to put their heart and soul into this. You can help them in that transition by meeting their energy and, and let your heart know that you've only got to play here for two more months and you've got another game to play. But your heart has got a choice. Your heart can still turn up for two months and be grouchy and miserable and pissed off and whatever and do a whole bunch of misery on yourself. Or you can just say, hey, we've got another two months of this while we're here. Let's take this as a transition period. Let's do what we need to do. Let's put our hearts into it, knowing that it's not a forever thing. Not a forever thing. Because when the heart goes, this is forever, mm-hmm. that's when we start to get depressed. That's when our energy leaves because the heart is kind of, oh, my God, I'm stuck here forever and ever and ever. But if it just knows it's for a week, for a month, for two months, hey, that's much easier to emotionally manage. And I know... Um, uh, many years ago when I was working like seven days a week and I was just, I had a whole month where I wouldn't, I'd hardly have half an hour off. It was just really intense. But I knew at the end of it, I was going to be spending three weeks skiing in New Zealand. So my free child, my little child was going, yeah, I thought let's just power into this, just hammer this stuff, get it done, get it done, get it done. I don't care if I, you know, just as long as I get eight hours of sleep, whatever, but I just keep on going because I know at the end of that, it's playtime. Not even plurking. This is pure playtime, <laughs> having fun, skiing, blah, 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 blah. And so I was able to keep my energy going through that time because I knew there was an endpoint and there was a huge reward coming my way for staying the course. So this really was, I didn't really realise at the time, but it was a a lived experience of me managing my emotional states, which is key. If you're going to be living a happy life, you have to be able to manage your emotional states. Otherwise you become like a puppet on a string for whatever else is going on around you. And I have to say, in the time that we're living, Managing your emotional state is like a high, high priority for pretty much most of the planet. Agreed. Agreed. Because there's a lot pulling on our emotions in many different directions. And there's a lot of uncertainty and that makes a huge difference on our, on our emotional well-being. Um, So let's, kind of look at that inner critic because it is a topic that's been coming a lot up yes. a lot 
And we all have the inner critic and we give them voices. We give them appearances. I find it interesting to hear how people describe them. You know, they've got the one that sits on the right shoulder, <laughs> one that sits on the left shoulder, you know, one's the angel, one's the devil. And, yeah. and then they've got the, the, the meanie that sits there and, you know, um, you suck, you're horrible. What are you doing? You're a louse, you know, um, one gal that I spoke to, uh, she was describing hers and had the voice of, of a Supreme Court judge. Oh. And I about roared with laughter with oh. that because it's like, I know that voice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've, I've met her a time or two, <laughs> especially when I'm working on something entrepreneurial. So it's. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And especially when people are stepping out and doing something new or something different uh, or whether being seen more or heard more, whereas mm -hmm. before they may not have done so, when we're stepping outside of our comfort zone. And it's, you're right when you say there's two things on, you know, one on each sh shoulder, one saying, yeah, go for it. The other one saying, don't you dare, you know, because of all these reasons. So there's, in my understanding, there, there's a battle between our, the creative force that resides within us that every single mm -hmm. human being has, you know, we all have this. But there's the other part, more egotistic in the sense of, and I'm using the word ego, not in the sense of this, you know, making something bigger, but it's a part of us that wants to differentiate ourselves in the world and know how the world is. And part of that is about, you know, who am I, what am I here for, all these kind of things. So we have these two parts, the creative part, the saying, you can do this, you can do this, and the ego going, yeah, but you can't because of this, because of that. And if you do, then something's going to happen. So, and it's sometimes uh, it's referred to as the battle of evermore, which I think is the Led Zeppelin song, um, <laughs> a, a meaning that it's forever. It's always going to be there. But another way of looking at it is knowing that it's there is how do we manage our own inner critic. And this is actually a new workshop I'll be doing this year because it's, you know, my radar has been coming, you know, ever since I wrote the book and having conversations with people. And gosh, many years ago, just a little side story, many years ago I was running a program on weight management and I was doing it in conjunction with a naturopath friend of mine. So she was doing all the the biology, all the diet stuff, and that wasn't my area. I was dealing with mental and emotional stuff around um, weight management. And I was using the model of transactional analysis, and your listeners can just go do a search on that. It's a very simple model. But very basically, it's like there's a parental part of us, an adult, and a child part of us. The parent has got two parts. One is the critical parent, you should, you must, you have to, in this kind of judge, <laughs> judgey type voice. And the other one is the nurturing side of us, which is more gentle, uh, encouraging, etc. Then there's a doubt that's just like a thinker, it's like a, a, a robot or a computer. And then the child, we have the free child, the wild child, it's like this five-year-old that's just bound full of energy and creativity. But there's also the what's called the adaptive child. And this is the part of us that we feel um, you know, we all want love and we learn from our family of origin that there's certain ways to get love. 
And if we do certain things, we don't get love. It's taken away from us. So the adapted child is a part of us that, that wants love but has adapted in order to meet the requirements of their culture, of their family, whatever it might be. So, for example, uh, in my family, I wasn't really allowed to be angry. So I learned to adapt myself and hold my anger in. I wasn't also really encouraged to be sad. You know, big boys don't cry all the rest of that crap and shit that <laughs> got right. passed on from my <laughs> parents' generation to mine and hopefully, well, you know, I've kind of stopped that in my family. But um, so I, I, I had difficulty in um, processing grief and sadness, which is about transition, mm-hmm. and I had to learn how to do that. So the adaptive child is a part of us that feels helpless, hopeless, life's a bitch and then you're going to die. So that's a part of us where we kind of spiral down. Mm-hmm. And then finally there's the intuitive part of us. But just coming back, you know, that's a big picture, like that's a five-minute um, overview <laughs> of the model. So this, I was talking about the critical parent and what the critical parent is like. And there's part of the child which the, um, the adaptive child can also, we can either comply, do what we're told, or we rebel. You tell me to sit down, I want to stand up. You tell me to stand up, I want to sit down. You tell me this, I want to do that. I want to do the opposite. Because it's really like a fight for sovereignty is who's in charge of me. And sometimes people can be unconsciously rebellious and I had to be aware of my own unconscious rebellion. Even if the thing that people were saying to me to do would be good for me, mm-hmm. if they're doing it with a certain tone of voice, I go, nah, nah. Anyway, so this woman <laughs> realised that her overeating was an unconscious, rebellious response to her inner critic that was saying, you should be doing this, you should be like this, you're not like this, you should be, and she was just going, basically sticking a finger in the air and going, oh, yeah, well, I'll show you who's in charge. (laughs) Binge on all the things that her critical parent was saying, you shouldn't be eating this. And when she realised that she was being unconsciously rebellious to her own detriment, she stopped it in a heartbeat. You know, and there's so many people who will relate to that. I'm giggling because I see that in some things that I do that it's like, <laughs> why did I do that? <laughs> so, I mean, rebellion can be good if we didn't have rebellion. Well, America would still be a, an English colony. Right. <laughs> so, um, and there's a whole bunch of reasons why we need rebellion. But if we, if we do it without consciousness, without awareness, it can be very detrimental because we're doing it. We're not running the show. It's that unconscious patterns that are running the show, often to our detriment. Yes. And interesting. I, I'm so glad that I'm speaking to you about the inner critic because it's helping me to clarify a few things (laughs) so if if i if i may just jump into something that might help that that might help with managing all of this so let me let me talk briefly about perfection oh please 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 (laughs) (laughs) thank you thank you Okay, we've got a free therapy session coming up here. So, <laughs> all, you, all, all you perfectionists, listen up. So perfectionists um, are always looking for what's wrong. They hardly yes. ever notice what's right. They're always looking for what's wrong. And 
there's a compulsion behind it. There's a must. I must do this perfectly. I have to. And there's that commanding must have to should, which is very critical parent. And I must be perfect otherwise. And the, there's a hidden otherwise. And so it's not in our full awareness. It's in the background. And so the little voices, the left shoulder and the right shoulder, mm -hmm. the most dangerous ones are the ones that whisper. Oh. The, ones, the ones that you can hardly hear because they just creep in without your knowing. It's the loud ones are easy to confront and deal with. Right, it's yeah. Whisper. It's the whispering ones that do all the nasty damage. So there is a whisper. I must be perfect otherwise. And basically, I'm going to be judged. And when I'm judged, I'll be not something enough, not be good enough, smart enough, pretty enough, handsome enough, whatever. And so the enough is a comparison. So someone is being compared. So you're being compared with who? Is it your siblings? It's with your parents? Is it with other people? And the worst one to be compared with is the unknown people. You don't know who Ooh. they are. Yeah. So it's all this unknown stuff that does all the damage because we can't confront it. Who are we com being compared with? Well, we don't know. So, and so it's kind of hidden again. And in all of this, we come off second best. And this is really, this points to identity. And identity is a deep sense of felt, who am I? It's um, very briefly, let me just branch off into neurology here because this is kind of into <laughs> neuroscience. Please go so for it. <laughs> we, <laughs> we have three major centers of intelligence within us. One in our head, that's the obvious one. One in our heart, which is becoming more well-known since the mm -hmm. Institute of, of Heart Math has been around for 25 years now. And the other one is the intelligence, which is called the enteric brain, which is our gut, our gut brain. So we have the head brain, which is called the cephalic brain the heart brain, which is the cardiac brain, and the gut brain, which is the enteric brain. Now, right from the beginning of birth, from, from uh, conception, when the cell first divides, the first neural network that's laid down in the womb is the gut brain. And this is our deep sense of self. It was our first biological sense of who we are as human beings before we even had any kind of consciousness. So on top of this neural network is laid the cardiac brain and then finally the head brain. So the gut brain, oh, by the way, in traditional Chinese medicine, this is kind of interesting, the head brain is called the governor. The governor, which is the part of us that does the organising, the planning, and that's what it does best. Then there's the, the heart brain, which is called the emperor or the empress. And that's basically where we are connected to what's really deeply important to us as human beings, our values, et cetera, et cetera, vision for life. And then the gut brain is called the general. This is our immune system. This is about boundaries. And I want to come back to boundaries because boundaries are really important. Boundaries rock. When we have good, clear boundaries, life is smooth. And our boundaries all over the place, life turns to basically mud and shit. Anyway, so <laughs> the general is in charge of security, personal security, emotional security. You know, often when people, and this is a little slide, side tangent, it's kind of interesting, when people fall in love and they get hurt, so they get wounded in the heart and the general goes, wow, 
that was a real shit experience. I'm going to keep you away from those kind of people for the rest of your life. So, so we want to get close to someone, and our gut brain just came, nah, they're an archie person. And we and they does something to sabotage what our heart wants because the gut brain, the general, wants to protect the emperor or the empress at all costs. Makes sense. Yeah. So coming back to, and I'm circling back around to, um, our identity of who I am. And I want to introduce another element of this because this is about validity. Am I a worthwhile human being? Do I have value? Am I a good person? Am I this person? Who the heck am I? But the judgment is all about validity. And validity has two parts to it. We can either have um, an external frame of reference about our validity. In other words, we need feedback from other human beings or we have an internal frame of reference about our validity. So if you take words like self-esteem, self-confidence, um, self-belief, the common word is self. Right. And this is our relationship with ourselves. So, and of all the people we will ever meet, we are the person we're going to be around the longest. Lovers and friends will come and go, you know, partners, parents, siblings, kids, whatever, all going to come and go eventually. And there we are right from the very beginning, right till the end. And I won't go past that because I don't know what happens after that. But in our lifetime, here we are. So if we don't have a good relationship with ourselves and we're always judging ourselves, comparing ourselves to others, letting other people um be the executioner of our validity, we are done for. So part of this is we have to, I'm coming back to boundaries here, at some stage, if we want to live our own lives, we have to decide, we have to make the decision, who am I going to be, um, who am I going to honour? Who am I going to be loyal to? Is it going to be me and my heart and what I want to create and express in my life? Or am I going to give my self-esteem, my validity to some troll on the other end of the planet that's written a tweet about me on my uh, Twitter feed or a critic about my book or my piece of art? And am I going to demolish myself because of someone who I don't even know makes some comment about my work? or me, and I'm going to crumble on the inside. And I reckon that sucks. That is just the pits. And sooner or later, if we want to kind of live a happier life, <laughs> we have to go, right, I'm going to be in charge of my opinions about myself. I'm going to be in charge of what other people's opinions are and whether I take them on board or not. Because mm -hmm. when we take things to heart, and this is... You know, any creative will understand exactly what I mean here. And we put our art, our creativity out to the world. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of people, when people criticize, even with good intentions, our artwork, our creativity, our writing, our drawing, our painting, our cooking, whatever it might be, and we take that criticism literally, neurologically and linguistically, we take that criticism to heart. Yes, yes, so we, we do. So we don't separate um, 
I've got a pen somewhere. Here, I have a pen in my hand. Let's say I make this pen with my own hands and my own design. And I say to the world, hey world, what do you think of this pen? Now, if someone says, Bill, that's a beautiful pen, does that make me a beautiful person? Well, no, because they're talking about the pen. <laughs> now, if they say, that's a really shitty pen, does it make me a shitty person? No, because they're still talking about the pen. So I need to separate who I am and what I do. I am connected to this. I am responsible for it. But it's I am not the pen. I am not my book. I'm not my drawing. I'm not my piece of art. I'm not my sculpture. I'm not my cooking pie that I've just made, my apple pie. <laughs> I'm not the thing that I've written. I did it, but I'm not it. The separation. Because if we don't separate that, then we take the pen, metaphorically, and put it right close to my heart. So when someone criticizes the pen, I internalize that to mean you're criticizing me. You're comparing me with something else and you're making me less than. And because I honor your opinion about me more than I honor mine, I'm going to crumble. And that is just shit. That is just crap. And if you're doing that, you need to stop it. So one thing that's been coming up a lot with podcast, you know, within this podcast is marketing. Not only, yeah. you know, and marketing is one of those or promoting because both of them are getting out there in front of people who we don't know people we do know and and it's that fear of the unknown what is the reaction going to be are they going to love it <laughs> or are they going to you know turn their back to it or are they going to criticize it and it's that unknown and I've become more and more curious about how to get to walk through it because it's not about getting around it. It's not about ignoring it or whatever. We have to walk the journey to get to the other side of it. That's a given. Yeah. And it's, it's getting through that fear and, and just, you know, you're really helping me to understand that it is, it's not me that I'm marketing, even though it's my book, it's my podcast, it's, you know, it's the coffee mug that I made. Um, and, you know, trying to put out there and I'm trying really hard to set it down gently so it doesn't make a noise. <laughs> um, it's funny how, how you become very conscious about the noise you make when you're recording a podcast. You know? <laughs> it's like the dog barking in the background, the refrigerator yeah. running, you know, so on and so forth. But anyways, so I've been really becoming more observant of where my hesitation is and with the marketing. And I know I've got to walk the journey. I've got to step through it. And it's like, you know, at the beginning, before we started, you know, the introduction of the podcast, I asked to take a picture uh, so that I could put it on the Internet for, you know, pre-promotion. And one of the reasons I became, I'm doing this as audio podcast versus video is I don't want to be seen. And when I recognized that in mm. a conversation uh, earlier this week, 
I, you know, cause she, somebody asked me point blank, why do you do audio versus video? And it's like, cause I don't want to be seen. And it was like, oh, I don't want to be seen, yeah, yeah. you know? And that was it. Well, what is marketing? What is promoting yourself? What is going out there and selling your wares? It is being seen. It is. Yeah. And when you think about us in childhood, um, you know, one of the messages I, I got was kids should be seen and not heard. And that's mm-hmm. an old one that's kind of changing now. Right. Um, but it's that if I'm seen, so here's the thing, being seen is not the problem. It's what we do when we're being seen that is the problem. Okay. I'm going to laugh because of the fact that you've really got me triggered now because it's like, (laughs) oh, she's not one. (laughs) (laughs) That's the good things about these conversations. Never know where they're going to (laughs) go. No, no. So being being seen is not an issue. It's what we do with what we think is going to happen when we're seen. So coming back to this being judged, okay. when someone sees me, do I care about their opinion about me more than I care about mine? And this is fundamental. Pretty much every creative person I've met is there's a comparison. Someone's better than us. Someone's less than us. Someone's more advanced than us. There's, there's always a comparison. And you've probably heard that phrase, you know, never, comp- never compare and you'll always be happy. So when we compare... The problem is not that we're being compared, it's where we put ourselves. You see, if if someone was to put themselves on video and they had the internal thing of, hey, you know, I'm really happy in my skin, I'm really happy in my body shape, my face, blah, 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 blah. Um, I don't really care what you think about me, here I am. Mm-hmm. Then when they for them to be seen, it's like you know, do whatever you like. Your opinion is your opinion of me is is yours. It's got nothing to do with me. But that takes some, um, you know, unless you've had a particularly um, encouraging childhood, it takes some working through, and it takes coming back to coming back to a deep sense of self and and how we re- and it is it's our relationship with ourselves. Actually, I'm going to take that word relationship apart because this is actually another really important part. <laughs> you know, when we talk about our relationship with us, ourselves, or the relationship, we're talking about it as if it's a noun. It's not. It is more linguistically accurate to say we relate our relating with ourselves. In other words, it's a verb. So when I talk about managing emotions, when people say, I feel sad, or I feel angry, or I feel scared, mm-hmm. they're talking about it as if the fear is a thing, like a concrete block. It's tangible. It's physical. We feel it. But our emotions are verbs. So it's more accurate if I'm feeling angry to say, I am angering. I am sad-ing. Oh. I am fear-ing. I am joy-ing. Because if I turn it into verb, which is what it is, it has a start point and has an end point. And anywhere along that line, I can intervene and change what I'm doing. So, for example, if I want to do depressing, all I've got to do is think of all the things I've failed in my life, all the consequences of that, 
add them all up with a big package, push that out into my future and say to myself, life is going to be just like this for the rest of my life. Well, that is depressing. If I think about all the things that are going wrong in the world, all the pain, all the anguish, all, all the, the trauma that's happening, and I just focus on that, and that is my entire focus for my day, I will depress myself. That's how I can do depressing. But it's not depression, a noun, it's a verb. And one of the things I've learned through linguistics and some of the other studies is the more we can turn our nouns into verbs, the more accurate we can describe our experience of being alive on this planet. So, for example, if I say to to someone, you make me angry, I'm Mm -hmm. giving them the responsibility for my internal anger emotion. If I say, I am angry because blah, 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 now I'm taking ownership of that. Mm -hmm. But if I go a little step further and say, I am choosing to feel angry because of what you said or did, that gives me the whole responsibility and therefore the power. So, you know, when when talking about the inner critic, the the inner critic is not the problem. The real issue is what we do with our inner critic. As I mentioned, I've got a a new program called How to Turn Your Inner Critic into Your Best Friend. And it's about this process of relating. So um, over 100 years ago, a psychiatrist by the name of Dr. Roberto Asaglioli, I think I've pronounced that right, and he created a, a model of human behavior called psychosynthesis. And in essence, what he was saying was behind every external behavior, whether it's positive or negative, there will be a positive intention for that human being. For example, let's say someone is being a bully. Now, we can call that negative behavior. But mm-hmm. underneath that, ne- that bullying behavior, there will be a positive intention for that child or, or person, whatever age they are. It might be um, because they're so frightened, that's the only way they know to protect themselves. It might be because that's the only way they've seen other people use power. Or it's because mm-hmm. they figure that the, the best way to, um, of defense is attack, whatever it might be. So there will always be a positive intention behind it. So um, this is kind of a preamble to what I'll be doing, but it's like there's a positive intention behind our inner critic. You know, criticism can be very, very useful. If if in a corporate or a professional setting we are unable, or even as an artistic expression, if we are unable to take feedback, then we become so precious, so fragile about the thing, our pain, the thing that we have done, mm-hmm. that we hold this like, and one little bit, it just shatters, and then we are doomed. We are, you know, <laughs> we go into a spiral that just, you know, is endless. Right. So, so then part of this is how do we make friends with an inner critic? And you may have heard the phrase, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. So why would we keep our enemies closer? Well, because if they're so close, we can breathe the same air that they are breathing. We can see them. We can be right in the same space. We can understand them more because we're viscerally close. So if, for example, one of my first books was, um, my first book was called Stop Procrastinating. 
And that was a really interesting story about how that all came about, but that's for another time. (laughs) Let's say, for example, there's a part of us that procrastinates. Mm -hmm. Then often what we do, this is an unwanted part of us. You know, there's a good part, you know, there's Mm -hmm. part, you know, clever. We like all those bits. We show that to them rather easily. Hey, have a look at these bits. But those other bits, (laughs) we go, no, no, I don't want you to see that. Like, you know, it's really messy here. It's yuck. So, those parts we push away mm-hmm. and the more we push them away the more they have unconscious power with us right because what we, we bring, avoid we yeah. what we try to push off or avoid yeah uh, we, well, yeah we what, what we what we this uh what we i ah, forget the term <laughs> i forget it too i know ah, it it up. <laughs> someone listening to this will go i know what it is hey good good idea so right, right. <laughs> you know somebody wow, is listening ah, is. connecting what it. you what you resist it's you persists. persist yes Yay. Yeah. You, i was gonna say somebody yeah somebody is you know <laughs> yelling at their speakers going what you, what you resist persist come yeah. on you too yeah really so thank you yeah we got it there we got it sorry it's all <laughs> um, so instead of pushing it away bring it closer so with that inner critic bring it closer because you don't want it whispering at you Right. You want to bring the whisper into a voice like this where you can hear. And then you can ask and say, hey, inner critic. And in the past, I've always tried to you know, get rid of you, put you in a cupboard somewhere, lock you away. But I actually want you to come closer now because I realize with uh, hindsight and wisdom that you've got some, some things that you can help me with in life. Um, I have to say, I don't always encourage, or I don't always enjoy the tone of voice that you use. And some of those phrases makes it really hard for me to hear your message. I'm sure they've got a really good message, but just the shoulds, the musts, the haves, and all the condemnation stuff, I just find it really hard to listen. I'm not hearing your message, but I want to hear your message. So how about we work out a better way of relating so you can get the message to me and I can hear the intent behind the message and I can do something with it. That way, you get to improve me as a human being because I know that's what you really want to do. <laughs> and I can really tune into the wisdom that you've got for me because I'm, I've got to tell you, I'm pushing it aside. I'm not hearing you because of the way it's delivered. But I understand you've got a message for me and I want the message. So can we work out a better way of how we do our relating so we can have a better time in life? That's an interesting way of of putting it together. I like that. It makes it less well <laughs> less <laughs> in your well, I was gonna say less in your face, you know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> less aggressive. <laughs> yeah, so it's a way of communicating and a way of making it humane so mm-hmm. that those bits of wisdom and the things that we because that sometimes the inner critic may be going maybe wanting to tell us that there's something in our life that we're ignoring because it's um, inconvenient or we don't want to look at it. So it's going, well, hey, hey, listen, dude, you've got to get a hold of this because if you don't, there's going to be disasters coming up for the song. So I'm just going to help you with this. I'm just going to go, nee, 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 nee. Like, for example, <laughs> why do parents nag their kids to do their homework? So, Cynthia, were you nagged when you were a teenager to do your homework? Yeah, and I did it to my boys. Okay, so why does a parent 
make the kids do the homework. Because they need to get it done. They need to take care of it. It's so the work gets done. And so who cares? Who cares? Well, I cared. <laughs> yeah, so why? But, so why? As a parent, and I'm, I'm using you as a, as a generalized parent. Right. So why do you care if your kids do their homework? Well, a couple of reasons. So that they learn. So they don't get in trouble with school. So okay, they so accomplish. Why do you, why do you, okay, oh, so why ahead. do you care? Why do you care if they get into trouble at school? Who gives a shit? <laughs> God, I love how you're putting all of this. Why, <laughs> <laughs> why do I care? Oh, you know, the first thought that popped up in my head was it's a reflection of me. Yeah, absolutely it is. You know, how our kids turn out are a reflection. But it's like the yeah. pen, you know, we're not the pen. <laughs> so that's one issue. And it's good to be aware of that. No problem with that. Well, you know, as parents, pretty common. Why else? Why else should you care? Because I want them to be educated. I want them to learn. Why? And Who cares? So that Why? they are a better, so that they have that knowledge. I don't want to say because it'll make them a better person because, you know, algebra never made me a better person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> But so, so that they learn. And so why do, you, why do you care if they learn? So that they have a better understanding of how life can be. So why should you care? Because I love them. <laughs> that's it. That's it. Well, that's the reason why parents nag their kids. Because they love them. But when a child has been nagged, they go, ah, you know, my mom loves me so much. She's nagging me because she wants me to do homework so I get good grades at school, so maybe I can university or whatever I want, so I can get the kind of job that I love, so I can have a lovely life. Hey, that's why my mum's nagging me. No, they don't say that. No. They just go, get off my back, leave me alone. No, 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 no. <laughs> yeah. They don't get the message. They don't get the message. Wow. And the message <laughs> needs to be delivered. But it's the way the message is delivered. That's key. Yes, it is. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know, we were talking about um, not knowing where the conversation was yeah, going. Yeah. <laughs> I most certainly was not expecting that, but yeah. Because, <laughs> you, you know, it, it does make you stop and think, what is, what is the right? And I love that you kept pushing for that. So. Yeah. I appreciate that. I don't like it at the moment, but yes, <laughs> that that uh, you know, you were talking about um, turning words from a noun to into a, a verb, yeah, yeah, into a verb. And as as you were saying that, I was envisioning a block with the word fear, like no white space, like filling every gap of that yeah. block is the word fear and by converting it from a noun to a verb it's movable indeed that was the vision that i had was wow i it's got casters i can now move this out of my way yeah and you can also take the fear ring and uh, so fear is there are two kinds of fear one is a useful fear, which shows us there's clear and present danger. Right. If if I'm about to put my hand uh, on fire, then my nervous system goes, no, you, that's going to hurt. Don't do that. And that will give me fear. <laughs> that will stop me doing something stupid. But the other kind of fear 
is the imaginary fears. And this is the one that does the damage. When we play movies in our head about what's going to happen, and it goes a certain way. So it'll be, it'll be two things that'll do it. It'll either be the pictures we're creating in our head or our internal dialogue about what's coming up. And with awareness, we can go, ah, I'm doing that old pattern of fearing about this because maybe in my past this happened, but hey, here I am in the present. Mm-hmm. I can do this differently. And I, I've done a lot of public speaking over the last 40 years. I've been on national TV. Uh, speaking at conferences to, you know, hundreds of people, all kinds of stuff. But my very first experience of public speaking was on my first day at school when I was like five years of age. Now, my parents wanted me to be an independent little boy. So my very first day at school, I grew up in New Zealand. That's where I was born. Mm -hmm. And they took me to the primary school and they said, uh, it was raining, as it does in Auckland quite often. So they took me to the classroom and said, there's a classroom, and off you go. So I've got my raincoat on and, and they disappear. And so I'm standing there not really quite knowing what to do. And another little girl, a girl was um, dropped off in the same way. You know, they want to teach us to be independent little beings in New Zealand. So <laughs> we both look, not really know what to do. And the teacher comes to the door. His name is, or was, Lively was known as Mr. Silver at that time. Lovely man. I was so blessed to have had such a teacher like him on my very first year of school. Anyway, he sees us, he invites us into the classroom. Now we were late. We were there like 10 or 15 minutes late. So all the other kids have been there. They own the space because they've been there. Mm-hmm. So we take our, our raincoats off. And in those days, uh, we all sat on the mat, on mats on the floor. Okay. You know, we're little kids. So so we sit, we're right at the at the back of the classroom. And so he turns to us and he says, so what are your names? And I'm at the back of the class. All of a sudden, all these faces, 15, 20 kids, turned around and looked at me. And I went, and I bawled my eyes out. These are my first words in public. (laughs) (laughs) I know. There's about, <laughs> probably about all of us could say that. Yeah. So my first my first experience of public speaking, of being seen and heard, was one of embarrassment. So for me, uh, but when I realised that part of my creativity was about expressing, expressing the bits of wisdom that I've gained around in my life, and that's mm-hmm. just part of my, this is what you can do, Bill, you know. that's it that's your mission so okay so part of that is getting past that and going you know what's more important is it the way that i look or is it the message that i want to deliver and when i boil it all down it's the message i want to deliver how i look how i sound (coughs) is secondary Sure, I do have some, you know, had you got my right side when you're taking a picture, photograph, and all the rest of that stuff is, you know, I'm a human being. But it's the message that's way more important. So that gives me freedom, which means I can act like a goof. I can act like an idiot. Um, I don't care. I really don't care. <laughs> what I do care about is the message that I, and, and these, bit, like in my book, it's wisdom that I've gleaned from other people. I didn't make this stuff up. I just happened to be the vehicle. It's through my voices, through my voice, through my stories and my expression of that. Mm-hmm. But the wisdom isn't mine. 
it comes from other people. It comes from generations and generations of trial and error, of pain and anguish to get to these points of going, this is it in a nutshell. Do this and this will happen. And that's my pleasure because of the my experience with that to pass it on. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I could sit here and pick your brain <laughs> for the next hour or two. Not a problem. I, I am curious, though. So when you sat down to write any of your books, did that inner critic for you poke up oh. and say? <laughs> did it oh. ever? So let me, let me talk about the first one, which is called Stop Procrastinating. So my first book, Stop Procrastinating. I wrote it in about three months, four months, and it was published by Random Century here in Australia. And they gave me an advance of $3,000, and this is 30 years ago, so that was quite nice, and I had a period of time to write, etc. So I wrote it in um, on a Word document, a double space, etc., mm -hmm. and did as much editing as I could but I wasn't the editor I'm just sending and so Matthew the editor said just send us the first draft and then we'll get an editor to look at it and then come back and so anyway I sent it off <laughs> about a month later this manuscript comes back and it's got red ink all the way through it every single page has got red ink so it's kind of like going back to school and you just mm -hmm. hand in your essay and the teachers put red ink through every single line almost. And <clears throat> it took me another month before I could pick it up <laughs> and go through the editing. The whole month I procrastinated because my inner critic was going, this is worthless. This is a bunch of rubbish that you've written. And blah, 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 blah. So my inner critic was just hounding me. But they'd given me some money. <laughs> I couldn't say, well, I'm just going to take your money and run it because they find me. They know where I live. So I had to go sit through it. But fortunately, the editor was kind enough to say, Bill, there's a message in what you've got. But what you've got is a rough diamond. It needs polishing. Mm -hmm. You need to stop the waffle. You need to understand that every chapter has to have a meaning, a purpose for being in the book. Every paragraph has to have meaning and a purpose for being book in the book. Every sentence, every word needs to do its work. Mm -hmm. And I remember going to a writing uh, conference and the author had written like 20 books and said, write once, edit 20 times. The writing is the easy part for me, just got to let my brain out on paper. The editing is the thing that takes the time because that means re refining, it means working harder to go, does this sentence work? Does this is this the best word I can use here? What's a better word? What's another way of explaining that, which is simpler? How can I do less and get more? And so that for me, that for me as a, as a, as a writer, as an author, is the the harder, the tougher part. But that's also like when I wrote um, how to be bulletproof. And I, uh, I deliberately made it a short book. It's like a two-hour read. I deliberately made it 
So it was easy to read. I didn't, it's not going to be an academic piece of work. It was going to be something that I want to be practical. I want to be useful. I want people to get the message behind it. Mm-hmm. So I added my own personal stories, you know, some from my, my childhood primary school, et cetera, of when criticism was used and I took it a certain way, some ways that helped me and some ways that made me spiral down. But it was all about awareness. So I had to go through it again, 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 and and I'll kind of get this rough diamond until, and also with a professional editor, and even after that, still finding some things, because I wanted this to be a work that I go, wow, this is the pen that I've created, this is the book that I've created, and I'm bloody proud of it. I just love it. When people <laughs> read the book, I know they're going to have a good experience. Mm-hmm. I know they're going to have a good experience. And many people that I know around me where I live, I live in an eco-village in Crumlin Valley on the Gold Coast. It's a beautiful, gorgeous place to live. And so we know all our neighbours. And so many people in the village have read the book and they say, oh, Bill, I've read your book and I'm reading it for the second time. And I know why they're reading it for the second time because in the book there are so many bits of wisdom, again, not mine, I won't like claim to the origin of the bits of wisdom. But the way that I've crafted them is to make it easier to understand and easier to read. And that's been the goal that I set out. That was my end result of what I wanted. And now I'm turning it into an audio book. And in the audio book, I'm reading the book. And in the reading of it, I found four errors that no one had found before. And I'm going, wow. And I just laugh because I'm going, it doesn't matter. No. People probably haven't noticed it. Sure, I'll fix them now because I've found them. But it was just like, you know, a perfectionist, it's like if I was to clean the room that I'm in, a perfect, as a perfectionist, I'll put on these white gloves. And with the white gloves, I'll put my hand at the back of the monitor and I'll find dust. And then I could break myself because of the dust that's there. But in the whole scheme of things, dust behind my, my monitor, my computer monitor, where no one can see it, who gives a flying whatever it really doesn't matter so for for me i laugh because you know my perfection bit can still be there i'm going no 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 gotcha it's got out there ha ha people might see this who cares that doesn't matter what matters is a message so when you understand what really matters that's the focus the other bits who cares well, and that was, I don't know who said it in, in, in what podcast, but someone had mentioned that every book has an error, every single yes. one, to take the pressure <laughs> off yourself. You yes. know? And, and, you know, in the scheme of things, what does it matter? You know, it really doesn't. No, no. As long as as long as the message is getting out there, that's the part that matters. That's the part that matters. And that you're using your voice and not using, you know, some fictitious voice to make yourself sound better, you know. And it's really easy, you know, you and I have talked, you know, you've coughed a couple of times. I'll edit that out. I've probably said something that I'm like, yeah, I'm gonna edit that out. <laughs> and but I've been trying really hard 
with this podcast because at first I thought I've got to be this particular person and then it's like no that's not me I laugh a lot I giggle a lot I especially giggle when I'm nervous and I say you know silly off the wall things the one thing I do cut out is where I'm oversharing and sometimes I've left that in but it kind of gives that backstory of me because I'm me and you know and part of me wonders you know that's that's what makes this podcast what it is i'm not trying to be somebody else yeah. and we and, really i mean and this is this is um you know in social media and and influences and all the rest of that it's like there's so much pressure especially on younger people i have to say Mm-hmm. Maybe when you get to uh, my just saying give a shit, it's just like, well, here I am. <laughs> Take it or leave it. But for younger people, there's so much pressure to look like this, act like this, sound like this, have this car, have this house, have this right. job, have this thing, do this holiday, la, 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 la. And, the, you know, this whole thing about someone taking a, you know, a selfie of this gorgeous life that they've got and they're absolutely living in despair. They are. It's mm-hmm. the total opposite of that. It's almost like we're too afraid to um, to not have it all and have everything working for us. Well, as human beings, we mess up. We're not designed to live a straight line, perfect life. That would be boring as batshit. It's yeah. all the quirks. It's all the, the things that we mess up and do. I've just been doing um, a coaching program with someone, and um, he's famous like when he's doing his training videos, to do one take, <laughs> that's it. So if he messes something up, he goes, oh, well, never mind. This is a really important bit. And what he's really saying to all of us is it doesn't have to be perfect, but just be you because everybody else has taken anyway, so what the heck. Might as and, well. And, and, and sometimes good enough is good enough as long as your standards are uh, something that you choose and are appropriate to whatever you're doing. Mm-hmm. You know, I talk about perfectionists and, you know, if, if I'm going into brain surgery, I would like my brain surgeon to be a perfectionist. Yes. You can seek a, thera- a therapist <laughs> afterwards and have counseling, et cetera, but when you're doing that kind of job, please, I want you to be absolutely perfect. But for everything else in life, hey, good enough is good enough. And Oscar, Oscar Wilde said, um, he said something like, all art is meaningless. And, and what he meant by that is art is um, art is, is, is something that comes from the inside to the outside. Mm-hmm. And it, its purpose is to flow through us, whether it's liked or disliked, bought or unbought, um, Famous or, or, or not famous at all, not seen or heard, that matters nothing. It's a process of coming from in to out. That is the real meaning of art. And whether yes. someone likes your painting, your book, who cares? But the real joy, the real internal com, uh, compulsion almost, is I've got this stuff inside of me. I have to get it out and into the world. And if people enjoy it, that's good. If they don't, I don't care. It's my joy to deliver it and be the vehicle for that part of our expression. 
Well said. Well said. Yeah, so, good on you, Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, and it's also the delivery of, of what Oscar had said too. So, so for those that are out there who are writing their book, and um, what is a pearl of wisdom? And I'll let you decide which aspect of writing. Uh, you know, whether it's the writing, the editing, publishing, marketing, wherever, I'll give you the freedom. Um, what is one pearl of wisdom that you would give to a writer uh, to help them along on their, on their journey? Mm. Um, well, the first thing that comes to mind, and this um, one of the most watched um, TED Talks or YouTube videos is Simon Sinek. Mm -hmm. And he talks about um, about your why. So when I'm writing something, whether it's an article or blog post or a book, the first thing I do is I ask myself, why am I doing this? What's my intention behind it? And when I'm clear on what my intention is, the flow starts. But if I'm not, and this is for me personally, and it may suit other people, maybe, maybe not. But for me, when I'm really care about my why, everything mm -hmm. else flows from that. But if I'm if I'm not clear on that and I'm sitting down and going, and maybe it's a should, maybe I should write a blog post or whatever, you know, the should comes into it. It won't flow. But when I come back to my why and my purpose behind it, then everything flows from that. So when I wrote, um, bulletproof my why was i have something to say mm -hmm. i could sense out there in my community um, i've been working with um, men's groups and men's gatherings for like eight or nine years and, and a couple of years ago i was listening to conversations around the meal table table and a lot of men were talking about how they find it difficult to take criticism from their partners at work whatever and so I'm going, oh, I can, I can kind of hear this theme in the room. And so I thought, well, there's a book. And so I had a purpose. And, and, my, and I'm quite clear about this. Many years ago, I realized that my particular pathway in life, my creative um, source or impetus, was, was about taking the mess of my life and the things that were messy and didn't work finding the, the things that I could make work and then passing that on. And that was going to be what I'm going to do. And I realized that's a long, long time ago. So I accept that. That's no big deal. There are millions of people do this, and that's my particular way of doing, of being on the, on the planet. So once I became aware of my why, then all the material basically came really quickly. Like I didn't have any difficulty finding material. I got 40 years of stuff in my head. <laughs> but then it was focusing on this particular thing. And another mentor of mine um, who's written several books, his name is William Whitecloud, he said, one book, one theme. One movie, one theme. He said, all the, all the uh, successful books and movies have got one theme. And when I heard that, I deleted a whole chapter of my book because there's a difference between giving people what they need and telling them all the stuff you know about it. So I could have had, you know, Bulletproof could be 10 times longer with all the things that I've learned, but right. it, would have been, it would have been confusing. It would have been complex. 
So I want to hone it in on one thing, how to be bulletproof from criticism, and that is it. Is that all I've got to say in life? No, I've got a whole heap more, but that's other books, that's other projects. So I want to hone in on one theme in one book. That is a really good pearl of wisdom, putting it to one focus, because I have a book that has five <laughs> because it's it, well it, it's aspects of life you know and it's like hmm maybe it would be five books in one yeah. or <laughs> or yeah, five I, sections breaking it down definitely breaking it into into groupings yeah and um, another mentor of mine who's written i think 19 books and he's only 40 um, he said, write a series, not one book. Write a series of books. It's like if you're at one restaurant in a suburb, no one will go there. You have five restaurants in the same block, everyone will pour into that little precinct where the restaurants are. So, yes. and I'm going, okay, I'm going to write a series. It won't be one book, it'll be a series. So, sure, I could. Uh, so, one of the, the series of this will be a book just for creatives. So it'll have some of the things that we've talked about here, but it's going to be targeted purely for creative people, whether artists or whatever it might be, because that's, you know, creativity is, is ubiquitous. It's everywhere. It's a right. million, million ways that we can be creative. Right. That'll be on that on that particular slot, and that'll be one slice, but it'll be all those things that are relevant for that audience, everything that they need and nothing else. I won't put anything else but the stuff that they need. You've given me a lot and a lot to think about. I've, uh, I'll be digesting this conversation for for a couple of days. And I'll tell you, you know, going back to the very beginning of our conversation and I asked you about clerking, after that phone call, or well, no, I guess we met on Zoom because yeah, you're in Australia, yeah. so I can't call you. Well, I could. No, I don't think expensive. I can. Zoom is yeah. cheap. Yeah, <laughs> yeah Zoom is a lot, <laughs> lot less expensive. Anyways, so after we got off that call and your description of clerking, and, and at that point I had been, uh, prior to our call, I had been struggling with a project. And I got up and I grabbed my, my watercolors and I painted a sunflower and then I Beautiful. painted the word plurk on Yay! it. <laughs> I've had it on my desk. I don't know. I don't know what I did with it because I was going to show you, but it's not right here. Um, so send me it, a picture. Send me a picture. I will. I will send you a picture of it. But, you know, it's amazing how conversations just they help us to kind of not kind of they help us to move through life and to make it a little better and i thank you for that i i honestly i thank you very very much for that before we wrap up the call um because again you and i could definitely talk for hours on end (laughs) and this you know hey here's a here's an idea let's do this again somewhere down the track yeah, we'll oh definitely we'll do this we'll do this again uh, most certainly. But before we get going too far, 
um, away from where I need to go, because <laughs> I will do that. Um, what is your website and where can people find you on the internet? Okay, so my website is bulletprooffromcriticism.com.au. That's my website. That's the easiest place to, to find me. Um, uh, the Bulletproof book you can get on Amazon. It's How to Be Bulletproof from Criticism and Do Whatever the Heck You Want. In brackets, it is your life. Uh, or you can just um, go on Amazon and look for my name. So Liam is L-E-E hyphen E-M-E-R-Y, but that'll be in the show notes anyway. Yes. Um, as I mentioned, I've got workshops coming up this year, and the first one's going to be around turning your inner critic into your best friend. I love that's gonna that. Be, that's going to be, <laughs> it'll be fun, but it'll be, you know, we're going to go to some profound places because, you know, when you think about the cost of our inner critic and how much creativity it can just stifle. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it just, and life is too short, like, let's just do this creative stuff. It's just too much fun. Um, so why not have all that fun? And the other thing is I've got a, if you go onto my website, so if you go bulletprooffromcriticism.com.au forward slash workshops, you'll find the workshop. If you go bulletprooffromcriticism.com.au forward slash quiz, there's a free quiz that you can go there that can help you to kind of evaluate how you deal with inner criticism or outer criticism and just give you kind of like a benchmark of where you are. And then there'll be some next steps if you want to take it from there. Interesting. I'll have to do that because, I mean, as you say it, it's like, oh, yeah, I know what my responses are. But then it's like, no, I really I, I don't know because I could be way off. So <laughs> I'll have to have to check that out. I'll have to check yeah, out yeah, the quiz. That. So, all righty. Well, you know what? I, I have absolutely loved this conversation. Absolutely Me too, loved I have it. To say. Yeah. Very, very fun, very educational, very enlightening. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a few like, Oh, yeah. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's got me figured out. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate everything, Bill. I truly do. It's my pleasure, Cindy. And please, let's do this again sometime down the track. Yes, definitely. Before we end our time together, I'd like to say thank you for listening to my conversation with Bill Lee Emery. To access his website and purchase the books he has written, visit pentapaperpress.com backslash podcast and select the show notes page for this episode. This episode is sponsored by the Women Health Circle. It is a transformative online health community for women. I'm a member of Rachel Kiefer's group coaching program, and I love her approach to nurturing our precious bodies. Learn more at healthnotgirl.com. Again, that website is healthnotgirl.com. To receive future episodes in your inbox, subscribe to the Pen to Paper Press podcast newsletter and follow us on your favorite podcast application. You are invited to share your favorite episodes with the individuals you feel will resonate with the content. Take care and until next time, keep your pen to paper and write. Your words have power. 
Your story matters. Bye for now.